Tucked away on the west end of Billings, Montana, across the street from a sporting goods store, next to a row of condos, and behind a gravel pit, is a place that, until now, I've only heard folks back in Butte whisper about in hushed, reverent tones. Out here, a family of glistening ponds and succulent wetlands beckon to the strip mall and traffic weary. A web of walking trails, footbridges, and shade structures offer shelter from the urban storm. It's a natural oasis, smack dab in the middle of magic city life. Checking out the dragonflies today. Oh, is that what you were looking at over there? Yeah. Poking around the cattails, I find Ron, who tells me he learned about the Shiloh Conservation Area from his kids. Now he makes it a point to stop by every day on his way home from work. I like coming out here and just uh, checking out all the wildlife and, and breathing the air around the pond. and It's really nice. It's a great place. We're, yeah. very, we're very fortunate to have this here in Billings. It's so blazing hot that Ron's one of the few humans buzzing around Shiloh today. But he says on other days, locals would be out walking their dogs, riding bikes, rollerblading. They hang out with the kids and, you know, drown a worm. (laughs) (laughs) Ron, however, is all about the flora and fauna. As he ticks off the species he's seen here lately. There's muskrats in here, swallows. And then one day I saw a turtle cross the road. I have to keep pinching myself because while Shiloh seems like it's a feral, organic wetland, it's far from it. Not very long ago, this was a big, empty field, badly damaged by the gravel industry. But Billings needed a way to control and treat its polluted runoff, so the city put Mother Nature's wisdom to work. These man-made ponds, basins, and wetlands naturally trap sediments and filter pollutants out of the stormwater before it flows into the Yellowstone River downstream. Do you think about that a lot when you're walking around, like looking at dragonflies that, oh, this is actually like a water treatment facility or you just think this is a nice place to be? Oh, more of the latter, really. I'm aware of it as a, you know, how it works, the filtration and all that. But yeah. that's not usually what I'm thinking about when I'm here. Yeah. And that's exactly yeah. what yeah. Stacy Robinson, who helped dream this place up, had in mind. You can already see and feel that it's going to be almost like the Central Park at some point where you have development all around it, and yet this amazing green space in the heart of that. Stacy is a landscape architect with horn-rimmed glasses, coiffed hair, and a salt and pepper goatee. He looks more Portland than Billings, but he's a local. I drove three and a half hours just to spy on this stormwater treatment facility in disguise with Stacy because his firm is being tapped to bring about the same kind of metamorphosis, just in the heart of Butte. As part of the Mining City's brand new Superfund cleanup deal, which was finalized in early September, a belt of contaminated land along the city's creeks will be polished into a sparkling emerald jewel. Oh, look. Oh, <gasps> another heron just popped up out of the cattail. How beautiful. <laughs> just soaring oh, around the so pond. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. yeah. As we marvel at all the avian life, Stacy says the Silverbow Creek Conservation Area in the works for Butte will look and feel very similar to Shiloh, just on a grander scale. Physically, the new park will be almost twice the size of the one we're in now. We're talking 120 acres, an area bigger than Vatican City, of green space and water features threading through town. Gosh, that, that green, the corridor that runs through all these neighborhoods, you know, it's visible from the interstate. It presents Butte in such a beautiful way. There's so many layers of opportunity with that. And it's going to be much more extravagant, 
In addition to everything we've been reveling in here at Shiloh, Butte's master plan shows leafy canopies, boardwalks, playgrounds, plazas, a great lawn, even an amphitheater. Ideas that were crowdsourced directly from our community. The way Stacy sees it, this project could give Butte a blank slate, a chance for the city to grow and evolve. Green space, healthy living, outdoor living, outdoor recreation, sustainability, on and on, all those words. We're applying to this. And I think that that's the, that's the goal, is to help redefine when you experience Butte, what do you do? I told Stacy that the mystique that surrounds this whole undertaking reminded me and Nick, our producer, of the prophecy in that classic 80s fantasy movie, Field of Dreams. If you build it, he will come. But instead of summoning the ghosts of baseball's past into an Iowa farmer's cornfield, this new conservation area could fulfill the promise of a cleaner, greener future for Butte. People will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. Stacy admits that there's a lot riding on this. And at first, he was reluctant to get involved because he wasn't sure how committed Atlantic Richfield, who's picking up the tab, really was. You know, I don't want to stand in front of a community and promise them the world and then not be able to, to deliver. But now, he doesn't have any doubts about the company's dedication or the overarching vision. To, to take a bad thing and not leave it as an okay thing, but make it a great thing. And that's what we're doing. I'm Nora Sachs. Welcome to Richest Hill, a podcast about the past, present, and future of one of America's most notorious Superfund sites from Montana Public Radio. Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family-owned, operated, and argued over since 1980, reminding listeners to think for themselves, but drink with others. SierraNevada.com. It's really tempting to equate the beautiful 120-acre conservation area about to blossom in Butte's Creek corridors with the mining city's long-awaited $150 million Superfund deal. And while the park is a powerful symbol of a healthier, greener Butte to come, it's really only the icing on the cake, the sprinkles that go on top after the cleanup is done. The core of the Superfund deal itself and how it proposes to solve Butte's lingering environmental problems forever is really important. Just a lot more complicated, legally and technically. And no wonder, three levels of government, the county, state, and the feds, plus a former oil company, all had to settle their differences and agree on how to clean up the rest of the environmental bust left behind by Butte's historic copper mining boom once and for all. So today, we're going to try to get our arms all the way around it and take a closer look at what's actually in this very big deal and whether the mining city believes that after all of its sacrifices, this is a big enough reward. This is episode nine, Butte Never Says Die. First off, before we get up to our ears and the contents of the deal, or consent decree, I want to tell you a little bit more about what it's like, and who it is, to me at least, as an outsider looking in. Appearance-wise, it's rather plain. 1,422 pages total of text, addendums, 
appendices, and attachments, overflowing with legalese and jargon, all stuffed into a three-ring binder so hefty it could moonlight as a child's booster seat. I've read it from cover to cover. Okay, I skimmed a little. And I still find it intimidating, confusing, and yet strangely alluring. If this was a romance novel, it would probably be a tragic tale of unrequited love. I struggle to understand the consent decree, get close to it, and in response to my advances, it's cold, distant, unavailable. This is not the kind of relationship that Josh Bryson, the local liability manager for Atlantic Richfield, has with it. Maybe I'm still kind of in that starry-eyed phase with, with the consent decree, but uh, to me, I, I fundamentally, I know what it says, and I know who it is and what it delivers, so it's easy for me to like it. Josh is in his early 40s, tall, dare I say strapping, a typical Montana ranch kid who had to leave the family farm in order to earn a living. So he moved to Butte trained to be an environmental engineer, and worked on the Superfund cleanup here for a decade before AR scooped him up. You can hear a lot of traffic because Josh and I are on foot, exploring a seam of land under the Butte Hill that's sandwiched between busy streets, the visitor center, the KOA, and the interstate. The I-90 exit for Montana Street is just a couple stone's throws away right there. And the first thing that people see when they're driving into town is, is really nothing. Nothing is an industrial drainage ditch, a mishmash of overgrown fields, bluish bald spots. And you kind of see some of the metal salts still waking up. You totally and impacting can. The, the environment. It's kind of a sad, weird no man's land that divides the historic uptown district from the flats, the sprawling valley below. It's also where Butte's headwater streams, or what's left of them, converge and flow onwards into the Clark Fork of the Columbia River. I, I kind of like just look at all of it. I think, you know, just starting by that, the confluence is a great place to start and start to... We're down here because fundamentally, the new Superfund deal is a blueprint for protecting Silverbow and Blacktail Creeks permanently. This tarnished corridor is where most of the action in it is slated to take place, and it's what will one day be polished into Butte's crown jewel. Now that a federal judge has given it the green light, Atlantic Richfield is legally bound to follow the cleanup roadmap as written. And it's up to Josh Bryson to get it designed, get it constructed, and get it operable by 2028. What is it exactly? Josh laid out the nuts and bolts of the new and improved remedy in the back room of a brewery when it got too windy in the creek corridor. He says, believe it or not, we're here because of stormwater. Really, the story from 2006 to the current is, is related to stormwater. So That's right. Out of all the myriad environmental challenges in Butte related to historic mining, stormwater has long been the toughest nut to crack for the parties in charge of the cleanup. Here's why. Flashy, high desert storms roll in hard and fast, washing metal-laden sediments off our highly mineralized and super steep hill down into our trickle of a stream below. And in spite of all the work that's been done to manage it, during wet weather, Silverbow Creek still doesn't meet Montana's strict standards for copper and zinc, which can be harmful to fish and bugs. And really what has been needed to be resolved between the 2006 record decision and now is what was the most appropriate, practical, feasible technology that could be employed to, to address that storm before it reached Silverbow Creek. 
After studying the problem for another decade or so, the parties concurred. Basins that catch and hold stormwater and drop out dirty sediments were far and away the most effective solution. And it's just a matter of where were we going to put the basins and how big were they going to be. So installing more catch basins at the bottom of the hill is going to be a major piece of the stormwater puzzle. And so is capping and recapping any leftover historic mine dumps on the hill. So sediments and heavy metals aren't running off it in the first place. But wait, there's more. Because there's also a dire water pollution problem hiding under the surface. A century ago, tons of mine waste and tailings were buried along the floodplain. And for ages, plumes of contaminated groundwater have been finding their way into Butte's creeks. Up until now, Atlantic Richfield has been forced to collect and treat the toxic groundwater in the creek corridor. They're going to have to keep doing that and fill in any holes in the system. But for years, the state and community have been fighting to get the source of the contamination, all that buried mine waste, eliminated too. And this time around, AR said, okay, we'll do it. We're in. Complete removal, no. Big removals, yes. And and the reason we feel comfortable with that is because we do have the groundwater capture system. Big sections of both Silverbow and Blacktail Creeks are also going to be rerouted away from areas plagued by old mine waste. Think of it all collectively as a belt and suspenders and garters and elastic waistband strategy for protecting water quality in our humble streams. By the way, Josh did the math and calculated that the quantity of mine waste that will be hauled out of the corridor could fill Butte's historic nine-story Finland hotel tower 24 times. And at the same time, by digging out all the waste, well, it leaves a nice footprint to construct a basin. So there's this small things in the evolution of the process that resulted in the overall agreement. It makes sense to me that with better scientific data and a more thorough understanding of all the water quality issues, over time, the parties were able to come to a consensus on what else needed to be done and figure out how to integrate the various puzzle pieces holistically. Josh says the outcome is a first-class remedy that's comprehensive and technically sound. But the deal is a negotiated settlement between the EPA, the state, the county, and Atlantic Richfield, which means there had to have been some compromises or trade-offs, right? Since the details of the talks remain confidential, all Josh could say without getting in trouble was, It's give and take. It's negotiations. One thing that may have sweetened the deal was EPA's agreement to waive some of Montana's water quality standards and replace them with slightly less stringent federal ones. But that's not as bad as it might sound. Experts I've talked to say, first of all, the federal standard is protective for aquatic life. Most states already use it. Second, it was necessary because the agency's models show that even if AR throws everything but the kitchen sink at the stormwater dilemma, Butte's tiny creeks still likely won't meet state standards for copper and zinc during storms. If you're the company being forced to pay for the cleanup, that's an impossible situation to be in. A catch-22. And Josh says, even with those waivers... There's no pass. I mean, you look at the investment that's going to occur in, in the remedy, and there's certainly no pass. It's one thing to hear Atlantic Richfield's liability manager talk up the Superfund deal. It's quite another to hear the Montana Department of Environmental Quality's Tom Stoops tout it, too. In my day job, I'm the federal Superfund bureau chief, so I oversee all the work we do on the 22 Superfund sites in Montana. Well, he was until a few weeks ago. Tom and I talked this summer, 
but he left his job at the end of August. He's worked on cleanups all over the country. And when we spoke under a tree near our state capitol, he really helped me get out of my winners versus losers, reductionist mindset. You know, Nora, since, since I was involved in all of these negotiations, Daryl was involved in all of these negotiations. Daryl Reed is the state's project officer, who was also there. I think we're very optimistic. I think we're very positive that a very good deal has been created for, for Butte and Montana on this. I, I don't think of it as what we didn't get. We got a very good, dynamic, durable solution for Butte, and that sets the stage for Butte going forward. That's a sea change from where the state was back in 2006, when DEQ, which is in a consulting role, said it couldn't fully support the cleanup that EPA, the lead agency, had selected, chiefly because it left major sources of groundwater contamination, like the heaping pile of mine waste called the Parrot Tailings, in place. That dispute over the Parrot stalled out Butte's cleanup negotiations for about a decade, until a few years ago, when Governor Bullock decided that Montana was just going to go ahead and take out the parrot tailings on its own. That broke the logjam. And the DEQ's Tom Stoops says the reason the state is so excited about this solution now, 14 years later, and why it works for all the parties, is because there's this baked-in acknowledgement that... We're not done. After we do all of the remedial action work, we will go into a period of monitoring. And, And the consent decree contains whether you want to think of it as a trigger or an action point, that if we're not meeting our goal of being protective of human health and the environment, if we're not meeting the numerical standards that are put out there, we've already discussed what we'll do next. That monitoring period Tom mentioned will last for 9 to 12 years after the remedy is complete, until approximately 2040. After that, everything should be in the operation and maintenance phase, just humming along. But the accountability... That never goes away. The EPA can always require Atlantic Richfield to do more remediation work. So that's one crucial guarantee. And then the second aspect of it is just just true for the modern world. We have a financial agreement. Basically, AR plans to spend around $150 million more dollars on Butte's cleanup and has insurance to cover most of that. So if for some reason the company can't or won't perform all of the work it has legally agreed to, as a backstop, there's funding for EPA to come in and take it over. And so to me, those, those things are very live. If you were on the other side of the table, you want to get the clarity that we now have. High level, Tom Stoops views this massive settlement as a recognition of the decades of work that's gone on throughout the Clark Fork River Basin, from Butte all the way to Milltown Dam. I've been doing this for 35 years. All I can say is it's monumental. It's great to be part of it. To most of us, $150 million is probably a jaw-dropping amount of money. And that's on top of the almost $300 million Atlantic Richfield has already spent in Butte and the $1.4 billion they've poured into remedy and restoration in the Clark Fork River Basin as a whole. Keep in mind, AR's parent company, energy giant BP, made $10 billion in profit in 2019 alone. For the company, though, this Superfund deal delivers the one thing money can't buy, closure. You don't close the book, per se, right? But you know exactly now what's required of you. That's local liability manager Josh Bryson again. The nine project areas outlined in the consent decree represent the endgame for the company's unexpectedly long tenure in the mining city. For AR and for Josh, 
This is the bottom of the ninth, the last chance to define their legacy. As an engineer, as a designer, you know, as a resident and a father, I don't think there's another project I'd rather be working on. I truly think it's going to be transformational. If what I caught a glimpse of at Shiloh, over in Billings, bears any resemblance to what AR and its small army of engineers, contractors, and landscape architects actually accomplish here, I think he could be right. Especially for this one highly visible, centrally located part of town, where most of the remaining mine waste reclamation is going to be focused. Instead of the creek corridor we know, with all of its neglect and blight, there'll be a modern stormwater treatment facility stitched into a delicate wetland ecosystem. One that eternally defends Butte's headwaters from the metals that put the city on the map a century and a half ago. And knit into it all, a gorgeous green belt for future generations to use and enjoy. Interestingly, I found out that all of the amenities planned for the Silverbow Creek Conservation Area, you know, the miles of trails, the playgrounds and plazas, the amphitheater that residents said they wanted, they're not actually part of the cleanup budget that's insured in the consent decree. Josh says AR still needs to hash out the details of the park with the county in a separate financial pact, and he won't talk about what the company might spend on it. But what I am telling you is that we are completely committed to it. We, we will design it, we will fund it, and we will construct it. To any doubters out there, Josh says, Watch us. The proof will be in the pudding. Back in the Silverbow Creek Corridor, as we tour the mile-long stretch of remediation sites, I can see Josh's wheels turning, anticipating all the logistical challenges to come. I was thinking about <laughs> excavators okay. on that soil and then having trucks come through to be loaded. Josh so is pretty direct about the years of intense work that lie ahead. The fact that he'll be retirement age by the time this creekway truly blooms into a functional urban oasis. And he doesn't want to pretend that this project, this park, is going to transcend life as we know it here. Let's face it, even with drastic improvements in this creek corridor. You still got this high wall of the mine and you still have a landscape that won't necessarily ever go away. But in Josh's eternally optimistic view, that doesn't have to be a burden. I kind of think the opposite. We can either be held back by this narrative or, or what we've done in the past as far as, you know, our industry or, or our reputation or Butte Tough or whatever it may be. Or we can start telling the story of where we're going, what we want to be tomorrow. And this, this is a critical first step because... When the work's done, of course, we get to delist. So, you know, there is no more Butte Superfund right here. In my book, everything Josh and I just talked about, plus all the weedy details we left out, is a lot to digest. So after the consent decree was unveiled in February, all the Superfund parties tried hard to break this super dense legal and technical stuff down to the public. They wanted Butte residents to understand what was in the deal, sure. But they needed to get the Council of Commissioners, who would have the final say on whether to sign it, on board. So they started a whirlwind, month-long education campaign, hosting all kinds of presentations, open houses, and community coffees where folks could talk to Superfund experts. Can I just get a house coffee, please? I attended as many sessions as I could to find out how Butte was coming to terms with this big, fat contract that had been dropped in its lap. And mostly they were like this one, pretty low-key. Basically what we're kind of talking about is that because 
we have contamination that could affect fish or the environment, and because there's contamination that could affect people, we've designed programs around both of those things that are part of the consent decree. And so the consent decree rollout seemed to be going smoothly, until it wasn't. This is despicable. Absolutely. It's an outrage. And I think everybody in this room needs to stand up with all the power they have against this crap. Yeah. What is this guy and everyone else so angry about? We'll fill you in after the break. Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family-owned, operated, and argued over since 1980, reminding listeners to think for themselves, but drink with others. SierraNevada.com Before I tell you why all those folks were so outraged, I want to describe the scene for a second. It was a Tuesday night, and all the Superfund officials were supposed to give one of their routine informational talks on the deal to a local advisory board. Suits, PowerPoints, you get the idea. But when I arrived at the Justice Center a little before six, it was clear something was up. The room was packed with dozens of people I'd never seen at any Superfund meeting before. There were crossed arms and clenched jaws, and before it could even start, it began to fall apart. Steve Jackshaw, a transportation worker, was the first to pipe up. There's 200 people that live on the north end of Timber Butte. That's a neighborhood on the south end of town with newer houses, big yards. A YMCA, and you want to bring contaminated soil from someplace else and dump it into an area that's not contaminated. And I I don't quite understand why you would do that. Remember the two dozen hotel towers worth of historic mine tailings that are going to have to be excavated from our contaminated creek corridor? Well, it all has to end up somewhere. Somehow, Atlantic Richfield had neglected to mention to Timber Butte residents like Steve that a site right next to their neighborhood might be that somewhere forever, for about a quarter of it. Now, this information was technically printed on page 51 of the draft consent decree. But most of these folks heard it through the grapevine. And I got to say, the optics were not good. If it wasn't for this flyer I got, I would have no idea. So whoever sent this out, integrity. Whoever did this, thank you. Jackie Higgins, who I managed to snag for a quick tete-a-tete, was also in the dark. I am a hairstylist. I teach senior aerobics and yoga at the YMCA. And I mother and I wife. And I do all of the things that come along with mothering and wifing. Jackie has lived in Timber Butte with her family for six years, and she loves it. It is quiet, and it's just peaceful. You've got neighbors, but they're not right on top of you. A few days earlier, she was right in the middle of moving to a new house a few blocks away, when a neighbor came by to ask if she'd gotten wind of the waste repository. She was shocked. The idea of putting trash on top of trash on top of trash on top of trash and then adding more for for years to come was just so overwhelming to think about. Jackie was concerned that having a waste dump out her back door would lower property values. 
but she was even more upset about the utter lack of communication from the Superfund parties. And I thought, well, the very first thing I have to do is make people know about it. I, I'm going to get nowhere on my own. Now, not only is Jackie a butte lifer, she's a hairdresser, so she knows a few people. She says she started making some phone calls, trying to get the word out. Rally as many people as possible and squeak louder, I guess. It worked, because at the standing room only meeting that Tuesday night, Timber Butte residents held forth. Many said they were worried about how their health might be affected, especially by dust blowing off the site, poor air quality, truck traffic, etc. I've heard that uh, you can't put this elsewhere due to safety concerns. Um, so my neighborhood, apparently, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Others, like this real estate developer, worried about the impact on homes and businesses. You're throwing away my investment of seven and a half million dollars and drive my property value down to nothing. If this goes through, you're just going to kill me. Folks claim Timber Butte was chosen because it's the cheapest option for waste disposal. You're looking to save money. And mostly, there was a lot of not-in-my-backyardism. We believe in you and we believe in cleaning up Butte, but at some point, it, it has to be looked at from the standpoint of this isn't our problem and it's not fair to dump it in our backyard. Now, this may sound a lot like your garden variety nimbyism, but there's a twist. The Timber Butte neighborhood is no stranger to toxic mine waste. There's already a miniature mountain of it buried nearby. It's just sealed under a popular sports and rec complex. But Copper Mountain, as it's called, has some issues. So Atlantic Richfield was actually proposing to fix the existing repository there and expand it at the same time. Two birds, one stone. That logic didn't fly. Placing a dump back where we already have a problem is not the answer. What I found so fascinating and even hopeful about this predicament was that these folks weren't just saying, hey, don't dump any more toxic waste in our backyard. They were saying, don't put it in anyone else's backyard either. Try harder. Do better. We don't want the crap in their backyard either. These people here aren't selfish. Eventually, the angsty meeting just disintegrated. I know for the Superfund officials, that night was a disaster. But I kind of loved it. Because in just two hours, I got to witness so many dynamics of Butte's Superfund experience play out in real time. There were rumor mills, conspiracy theories, mass confusion, and a deep-seated mistrust of the experts in charge. But what was really driven home to me is that most people have much more pressing stuff to worry about than a 30-year cleanup of antique mine waste. That is, until it directly touches their everyday lives or livelihoods. That was certainly true for rabble-rouser Jackie Higgins. Is this the first time you really, um, as you said, made your voice squeaky about Superfund and environmental cleanup-related issues? Or is this something that's like a practice for you? No, this is the first time. Yeah, I just, and, and honestly, I don't, I hope to become a part of this more often and learn more and make my voice heard. I feel like, I feel like we are so in this political place right now where we feel like we can't control anything and we actually can we just need to get people together and be loud she's dead on because almost immediately following that fiery meeting the superfund parties back down and that option is now officially off the table 
Timber Butte had won. So we know no more old mine waste is headed for that neighborhood's backyard. But what's still not clear, and probably won't be for a while, is where is it all going to go? Atlantic Richfield says they're sharpening their pencils, but they don't have an answer just yet. Anyways, once the Timber Butte uprising was over, the parties went back to trying to get folks psyched about the feel-good stuff, our very own field or creek corridor of dreams. It's the end of February, and while I know it sounds like I ran off to a beach rave in Ibiza, I'm actually back at Butte Brewing with about 100 other locals. Witnessing the Silverbow Creek Conservation Area come to virtual life. On a big screen, avatars stroll stiffly through a trippy but tranquil 3D rendering of trails. Picnic on the Great Lawn, wet a line in the fishing pond. If this is anything close to what Butte's future might look like, to be honest, I'm pretty into it. And you know what? I was definitely not the only one. Here's Butte resident Melissa Wanamaker. Um, This is my absolute first time hearing any of these plans, and I'm excited. It's amazing. Pat Kinneen, you know, the environmental scientist who told us about his shoes getting eaten by acid in the creek as a kid in episode seven. Well, he was there too. And he was a little less sanguine about the whole thing. What were your impressions? What's on your mind right now? Well, obviously the inland use is the icing on the cake. And I do think it's pretty attractive icing. I think there are a few questions folks still have about the cake, though. And not just about the hot topic of mine waste disposal. Folks also had questions about public health, which the consent decree doesn't really address head on. It does call for fixing the capped mine dumps on the Butte Hill, which will be good for the creeks and for people. But more work to protect humans from metals lurking in buildings and yards is going to be done under a separate cleanup order, which no one knew the specifics of because EPA hadn't issued it yet. Other people wanted to know, why are we building a park around contaminated stormwater? That's what I'm hearing in the back of the room. Overall, Pat said he didn't think it was fair to drop an enormous document negotiated for years behind closed doors and then expect everyone's questions to be answered in just 30 days. You know, you, you have to have the buy-in from the public because in the end, they're the owner. And it's like one test drive, I'm not ready to buy the car. You know, I got to look under it, I got to open the hood, I got to take it home, I got to show it to the kids, I got to see if they fit in the back. And, you know, this is, this is a single test drive. We need more time. So there were weeks of nonstop meetings, open houses, coffee hours, long conversations. Butte was trying its best to come to terms with the Superfund deal. And then... Read a book, play a game, or just watch television. But Butte police want people to try and stay indoors. Even though we were thousands of miles away from the pandemic epicenters, in March, our governor shut Montana down. And most of life as we knew it came to a screeching halt. People are also ordered to maintain social distancing and avoid crowds. 
which means after months of careful preparation, Butte's huge pending decision on the consent decree was suddenly up in the air, and everyone was scrambling to figure out what to do. But here in America's most Superfund site, virus or not, some things just couldn't wait. Remember our pal Mark Mariano, the Berkeley Pitt's first ever bird protection specialist? <laughs> or restoration ecologist? I don't know. You can call me whenever you want. Well, this spring, as the skies over the northern Rockies teemed again with birds headed north, Mark Mariano was once again on duty before sunrise at the bird shack, a 10 by 8 foot structure. Perched up on the high wall of, of an abandoned copper mine, which has filled with water. As we've discussed, the Berkeley Pit's acidic, metal-laden water can be deadly to birds that land on it. So Mariano's job is to quickly haze them off. And since it was the middle of spring bird migration, his work was considered essential under Montana's stay-at-home order. This season, he said there's just a lot more to worry about. That morning, he entered headquarters with a camo buff covering his face and Clorox wipes on each hand. Which is funny because when it's really cold, they freeze to the door. Then he religiously cleaned the arsenal of bird hazing gadgets, which included a sporting rifle. You know, you haven't really lived until you disinfected an AR first thing in the morning. It's used to scare birds off a giant toxic lake. Once all the tools were sanitized, he got down to birding, using a scope to track a bunch of ducks paddling across the pit's vast, white-capped and teal surface. We're going to shoot at a group of shovelers. That's because the giant green laser beam he tried first wasn't enough to spook them. Yep, ready. One shot that was about 10 feet in front of him and every single one is up. Mariano said overall, he loves his work and feels safe doing it, alone in the emptiness of the open pit mine. And even in the middle of this global pandemic, he discovered some reasons to keep looking up. Fewer planes in the sky and boats on the water I mean, the world is quiet. It's been some really awesome birding. So even as COVID-19 turned the country upside down, specialists like Mark Mariano, who had to keep the most essential Superfund activities going no matter what, got to be out in the field. But the rest of us, we were stuck at home, hemming and hawing about the fairest way to proceed with this unfinished business of the Superfund deal. With so much at stake, people were torn. Should we stick with tradition? Pivot and go virtual? Wait and see if the virus blows over? Hello. Hello. Since I couldn't pound the pavement, I made a lot of phone calls. And I learned that many older Superfund activists were like, hold on, there's no deadline, so what's the big hurry? Let's just press pause until we can safely gather together again and everyone can have their say. I think it's, a, it's really a bad situation because the council will not get the full flavor of, of public uh, opinion on this thing unless they're able to go eyeball eyeball with their citizens. That's Evan Barrett with the Grassroots Restore Our Creek Coalition. And he's got a point. Remember the angry mob from Timber Butte? And how effective they were? Others, like John Sesso, the county Superfund coordinator, said, Come on, there have already been plenty of opportunities to weigh in, ever since we started the reveal two years ago. 
We've worked so hard to reach consensus on this deal, and it could slip through our fingers if we wait. The wheels of government must keep turning. My thing is, listen, we've got to roll with it. If there's a new way to do business, we've got to deal with it and do it that way. How to press on and when, though, was no longer up to Sesso and the Superfund team. It was up to Butte Silverbow's governing body, the Council of Commissioners. These 12 elected individuals represent about 35,000 people in the city and county. And they alone held the power to decide whether this was a good cleanup deal, like the best Butte was ever going to get, and then vote yay, allowing our chief executive to sign it and send it to a federal judge, or nay, and throw the baby out with the bathwater and go back to square one. Really being in that moment and understanding the gravity of it, it felt very heavy. That's District 2 Commissioner Michelle Shea with Mabel, her elderly Aussie border collie cross. She, she knows when I put these shoes on that we're going somewhere, so she was relentless. When I Michelle, Mabel, and I are out for an evening stroll at Foreman's Park, a reclaimed mine yard high on the Butte Hill with a sweeping view. Michelle says she loves being down in the trenches, but she comes up here to get some much-needed perspective. When I look over the entire valley, I just feel a sense of community. And I feel like, especially in times of a pandemic like we're in now, that we're really all in it together. I think Michelle brings the same quality of being able to see the forest for the trees to her role as commissioner. So I was dying to know what it was like to be in her shoes, carrying the full weight of the consent decree on her shoulders and being trusted to do the right thing. Well, I can tell you that it's kept me up at night. This was over the phone back in April, when she was right in the thick of it. When you're kept up at night, uh, what are you thinking about or wrestling with? So I wrestle with the pieces, I guess, all of the requirements, trying to understand the passions and reconcile those with the laws and the regulations and what is and isn't possible from the different agencies. As you try to put all the pieces together, you really, you really want to come to an informed decision. Michelle says the reason it all felt so heavy is because unlike a lot of other issues she's used to tackling as a public servant, say potholes or stop signs, the consent decree will have a lasting impact, not only on her district, but on the whole city and the watershed downstream. And just like mining has been a major part of Butte's identity, the Superfund cleanup will be too. Because Butte really does have a never-say-die attitude, and we just seem to keep rising from the ashes over and over and over. And I'm just really hopeful that an eventual cleanup, when it's approved and if it's approved, will show that. But because of the disruption caused by the pandemic, she wasn't ready to make a final call. That being said, I do think that the CD is urgent business. So we, I don't think that the public should have to wait for a decision one way or the other forever. Eventually, Butte's Council of Commissioners regrouped and said, we don't want to rush or cut off anyone's chance to give input on the Superfund deal, but we also can't postpone this thing indefinitely. So we'll hold the public hearings, we promised, but we're going to move them online. Thank you for calling the Butte Silver Bow Council of Commissioners meeting. Please state your name and address for the record. I enjoyed the predictably glitchy, but mostly functional, virtual meetings at home, on my couch, with my laptop, my dog, and a glass of wine. Make that glasses of wine, because I assure you, 
there were hours and hours of comments on the consent decree. By my tally, in two meetings, the council collected over a hundred by phone, letter, email, even video. That's a lot for Butte. There were a few naysayers, for sure, and a small but mighty contingent insisting the CD doesn't go far enough because it won't rebuild the very first upper section of Silverboat Creek. But mostly, the overwhelming refrain went something like this. Honorable commissioners, as I believe it is good for the future of our community, I encourage you to approve the consent decree on behalf of the citizens of Butte Silverboat. Basically, folks crawled out of the woodwork to express their support for the Superfund deal saying, you know what, it's not perfect, but it's better than good enough. And in the long run, it will benefit Butte's environment, its economy, and its reputation. There was also a pretty common sentiment that it was high time to move on, and that everyone was ready for a little less talk and a lot more action. We deserve nice things in Butte. We have waited long enough. Even the Superfund watchdogs and hardcore environmental organizations said there was a lot to like in the deal and urge the council to ratify it, stat. Our opinion is that the consent decree will provide Butte the Superfund remedy it deserves and the cleanup that Butte has been fighting for. Some residents got quite poetic in their comments, speaking in terms of synergies, lights at the end of the tunnel, corners being turned, new chapters being written. The letter that really stuck with me, though, happened to be from scientist Nick Tucci. We finally behold the opportunity to control our destiny. This is a monumental moment for the council, and your vote will determine our fate. Finally, the commissioners decided they had heard enough. A few weeks later, in late May, they were prepared to cast their milestone vote. Uh, District 1, Sean Fredrickson, if you could please state your, your vote. Yay! I live-streamed that virtual council meeting with bated breath as the votes slowly rolled in. District 3, Chairman John Morgan, I would vote yay. In the end, after all the drama, all the waiting, the consent decree sailed through. Mr. Chief Executive, it looks like we have 10 yay and 2 nays. A motion carries with 10 yay and 2 nay. Commissioner Michelle Shea voted yay that night. Not from the council chambers like in the before times, but from her kitchen table. And she says when it was all over. And the screen went blank. I just sat there. Yeah? (laughs) I just sat in my chair and really prayed that we did the best thing. Did you have any doubts that you did? No, not in the moment. Time will tell, you know, just like anything else. Time will tell. It's a few months after the vote and we're on top of the world again at Foreman's Park. Right next to the trail, on the other side of the fence, is the beige moonscape that once defined the Butte Hill. Unlike the other mine dumps that still dot the hillside, these were left untouched on purpose, a gritty memorial to the scars Butte's mining history left on its land and its people. Six generations of Michelle's family have lived here, and she feels the spirit energy all around. It's almost haunting. She says if you get quiet enough, you can imagine all the hustle and bustle of this once booming city on the frontier. And you can imagine all the suffering and the trauma too. We've learned to live with our traumas and some of them are very hard to let go of. And I can see why change was 
is scary for people. It's scary for me. It's, it's scary for a lot of people. And this is a big change. At heart, she says, that change is a willingness to look more forward than back, towards the future while honoring the past. And Michelle believes if you dig down, Butte's ready for it. The Superfund stigma, you know, we'll probably throw a party for it when it leaves. I kind of think Butte's really a sleeper right now, kind of a dark horse in the, in the state. I've talked to other people who are involved in economic development and they feel the same way, that we're really on a cusp of sink or swim. And I think that this consent decree and the de- eventual delisting is really has the ability to tip the scale one way or the other. Hmm. One way or the other, not just mm-hmm. sort of swimming. Mm-mm. Wow. After my conversation with Commissioner Shea, I started ruminating on which way the scales might tip and why, and what we all mean when we talk about a post-Superfund future in Butte anyway. Even when the city is finally deleted from the list of the most toxic sites in the nation, do the troubles ever really go away? And when the cleanup is in the rearview mirror, what will fill the void? We'll gaze into our crystal ball together, next time on Richest Hill. Richest Hill is a production of Montana Public Radio. Nora Sachs is our host and reporter. I'm Nick Mott, our producer. Eric Whitney is our executive producer. Josh Burnham is our digital editor. Our theme music is by Dublin Gulch. Other original music composed and performed by Jonas Benetta and Oren Pearson. Special thanks to Stacey Robinson, Land Design Incorporated, Josh Bryson, Atlantic Richfield, Tom Stoops, Daryl Reed, the Montana Department of Environmental Quality, Nakia Green, Dana Barnacote, the Environmental Protection Agency, John Sesso, Julia Crane, Eric Hassler, Dave Palmer, Jackie Higgins, the Timber Butte Neighborhood, Mark Mariano, Montana Resources, Melissa Wanamaker, Pat Kinneen, Michelle Shea, Sean Fredrickson, Cindy Shaw, the Butte Silverbow Council of Commissioners, Evan Barrett, Fritz Daly, Joe Griffin, Raylan Brandle, Northy Trethaway, Dave Williams, Sister Mary Jo McDonald, David McCumber, Brad Archibald, Cassie Wick, John Ray, Nick Tucci, the Restore Our Creek Coalition, the Citizens Technical Environmental Committee, KBMF LP Butte, and NPR Story Lab. Phew! Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and stay up to date at ButtePodcast.org. Podcast.org.